This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Sonali Chakravarti, and she is author of Radical Enfranchisement in the Jury Room and Public Life. This was published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press. This is a really interesting consideration of the role of juries and how they operate, and also how we should think about what goes on in the jury room itself. But I'm going to let Sonali tell us a little bit about that and also how she came to this project. Hi, Sonali. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Lily. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and to talk with you about this book. Um, so first, maybe I'll, I'll talk a little about how I came to this project. Um, uh, my doctoral dissertation and my first book um, was about the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the name of that book was uh, Sing the Rage, Listening to Anger After Mass Violence. And um, and there I, I looked at um, how do we listen to expressions of anger and rage when, um, uh, when citizens talk about what happened to them during mass violence. And, um, and I thought that that period of upheaval um, and the possibilities of rebuilding trust at, um, after mass violence um, uh, made it a really distinctive uh, period for incorporating citizens um, into political institutions and into political life in a new way. Um, but one of the things I said in that book is that when we um, uh, listen to people who have often been excluded from political life and listen to their anger, that should just be the beginning of a process of citizenship and that they should not only be valued for their testimonies of suffering, but for their um, ability to be um, uh, political decision makers. And they should be given, you know, the, the dignity, authority, and respect of full citizens. And so that got me thinking, like, what, where are the institutions um, in, in the U.S. where um, we allow um, uh, ordinary citizens, not experts, not elected officials, to have um, decision-making power? And, um, and that's how I came to the jury. And I really see it as a distinctive um, in our legal and political landscape, one of the few examples of direct democracy in action. And where um, the fact that you don't know a lot about the law when you're going in is uh, is an asset and is something that um, uh, that our legal system values um, because the jury is the um, sort of final check um, on the state um, when it comes to uh, a punishment in that no one should be punished by the state should have their liberties taken away unless um, a, you know a jury of their peers of twelve ordinary people have decided that that is the appropriate way to proceed um, and we don't want to make that a formulaic decision. We don't want machines to do it. We want um, ordinary people to, uh, to make that decision. Um, and and so you, you do a number of interesting and useful things in this book for those of us who are not 
experts on juries, and I am not. Um, and and I have a feeling many many listeners may not be experts on juries. I mean, we understand them because we see um, sort of presentations of this all over in popular culture. Um, and you start the book with you know reference to Twelve Angry Men, um, a classic sort of story about a jury room. Um, and again, you know, this is on television every night in terms of our understanding. And many people have served on juries as well. Um, but you're sort of talking about the the dynamic that goes on and and should perhaps be how we think about the jury itself. Can you talk a little bit about, because um, you trace this in the book, sort of where juries came from? Sure. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, the, the Magna Carta um, uh, is, is what was considered one of the first um, recorded um, uh, d- uh, documents that considers a jury. And in the case of the Magna Carta, the idea was that if the king were to truly have limited power, right, if, um, and to ch- as a check on the king, um, if uh, a baron were on trial, the baron should be tried by a jury of his peers, other elites, um, but people who were not appointed by the king. So there was a sense that for um, uh, power to be legitimately held, for power to be uh, be stable within an institution, um, there has to be um, a check on absolutism, and um, and uh, the jury is is one such check. Um, and through the development development of the of the common law system, um, uh, the the jury played an important role. Um, and I uh, write in the book about um, uh, the idea of mixed juries, um, which is uh, um, a type of jury um, research in a book by Marion Constable, who's at Berkeley, um, about how in in the uh, Middle Ages, if um, uh, a foreigner were on trial um, in in England, or a merchant, or someone of a religious minority, they would. Um, uh, for the trial to go forward, they have half the jurors should be from the same group as the defendant, um, uh, because the idea was that if we really want to understand um, uh, the, the logic of this violation and um, and also have a jury that is sympathetic to the defendant, which is also a key part of why we have a jury, um, then it, it makes sense to make sure the jurors understand the life world of the defendant. Um, and this is you know this is a far cry from where we are now, where you know if you know anything you know if you know the defendant personally, you are um, excused. Used um, uh, from the jury. Um, oftentimes, um, jurors are selected uh, from a lo- locality that is uh, quite far, far removed, either socioeconomically or you know, even geographically, from uh, where the crime took place. Um, but the idea of the jury um, uh, was uh, important to the common law process and was very important to the founders. Um, uh, it was important because during the colonial period, um, um, the juries were where uh, the, the um, British uh, power was checked. Um, and and uh, um, juries all, you provided this way of um, kind of trying out local rule, right? Letting um, um, uh, those who lived in the colonies make decisions about punishment that happened where they lived. Um, and then after um, um, af- after independence, um, uh, juries were important in the balance between local and federal power. The idea is that um, the jury is the place where we decide whether the law that's on the books um, really should be enforced in this way at this particular time. Um, that uh, you know the the law should, it, we want it to be fair, but we also um, know that you know each person who is accused of violating the law should be given individual consideration, and uh, we should think about whether it makes sense to apply the law in this way at this time. Um, and so uh, the founders really fought for um, uh, juries to be included in the constitution. And um, and in those debates, um, 
the term enfranchisement um, was not just about um, uh, the ability to vote, but was about the ability to serve on a jury. And this, because it was seen that to, uh, uh, if that right is protected, um, that's one of the most important checks on the either the um, overreach of the power of the state or the um, you know uh, you know sort of turning the majority the violence that that some citizens might do to other citizens. And we need a we need a check on that as well. And that was one of the points that you make early on in the book that I found really fascinating to consider that the idea of enfranchisement, again, most of the time we think about that as the right to vote. But as you note, the founders in particular thought of this and it's kind of embedded in in, in their notion of this as the role of serving on a jury and of voting and that this is a sort of the role of citizenship. Can, can you talk a little bit about how these two parts together um, are also part of the sort of spine of your thesis in terms of the idea of radical enfranchisement? Sure. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you're right to talk about these two parts together. Um, you know, um, uh, the jury is something that uh, we do people might serve on, you know, one, two or three times in their life, you know, and, and whereas voting is something that we are, you know, uh, uh, pay special attention to at certain times, but is, um, uh, you know, a regular part of our life. And, um, and in an important way, we hold representatives um, to to account. Um, but what I think is so powerful about the jury is that you're not using res- representatives, like people actually have final decision making power. Um, they have, they can stop someone from going to prison, they can, um, uh, they can, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, punish people who they think are deserving of it, and um, and and being um, uh, sort of given that type of power is an ennobling um, experience. And um, one interesting uh, thing that social uh, um, psychological studies have shown is that people who serve on juries um, come out with um, a, you know a greater appreciation of the criminal justice system and sort of feeling pretty good about themselves and about their their fellow jurors. Oftentimes, they say it was incredibly difficult. Uh, work, like that there's, you know, like emotions run high, people really question, um, uh, you know, their assumptions, and they get frustrated with other jurors. But um, they, you know, by and large, uh, people think that the the system works. Um, And um, my argument for radical enfranchisement is to kind of is is trying to get us to kind of lean into the higher demands of um, of the of the juror as a way to think about um, uh, sort of the higher demands of citizenship that we might bring to other parts of our lives. And uh, one of the things I discuss in the book is that we need to be educated more in how to become jurors. Um, Like you mentioned, that we can like on TV every night you can see something about juries, and you know I I also talk about the rise of true crime podcasts, which has kind of made jurors out of us all, you know, um, I think uh, that, that, you know, that first podcast serial um, that was so popular was really put listeners in the in the jury seat to be like, who's lying here? What, you know, and, and also what do you do when it seems like everybody's lying? How do you try to get to the heart of, of a story? And um, serial did a good job also of um, showing that you might think someone is guilty, but um deciding whether the state met the burden of proof to prove beyond a reasonable doubt is a different type of standard. Um, and um, and we, you have to be able to decide, um, uh, are you are you judging just according to your gut reaction to something, or are you able to apply um, the, the standard of reasonable doubt? Um, but I think oftentimes we 
people when you ask people, you know, you like true crime um, podcasts, but you don't want to serve on a jury. Like, well, how do you reconcile that? People think like, oh, it's just it takes too much time to serve on a jury, or the trial is going to be really boring, and it's you know it's not going to have the same um, a dramatic pull that a good TV show or podcast has. Um, but I also think that um, uh, people. Are often afraid to have to judge that um, that that it's a difficult decision and and um, and I think especially for people on the left they don't want to be in the position of um, uh, having to reconcile like the the deep um, racial injustices they see in the criminal justice system um, and uh, and then maybe the particular case in front of them um, which may point to uh, you know a guilty verdict or um, uh, may suggest that punishment is the right uh, is the right outcome, and so I think, um, especially for left leaning uh, people, there's been this uh, fear about uh, being you know being tools of um, a system that they see as unjust. Um, but I think that's giving up too much responsibility. I think that we need everybody to do the the, the work of being jurors, and um, we also need to work for things like prison abolition and restorative justice um, possibilities and um, alternatives to incarceration, but. I think um, uh, uh, taking on the responsibility um, of being a juror and saying, like, I, I want to sit with this and think about it. And if I don't want to send someone to prison, I need to think about why that is and um, and see what how other people feel about this. Um, and I, so I think that, like, taking on the, that responsibility and then saying, like, I'm still, like, a good person to judge this um, uh, is uh, is part of what's radical about uh, serving on a jury um, that um, creates a relationship to other citizens and also to the law that can carry over to public life more broadly. And you you talk about the fact that um, working on it, or sitting on a jury or serving on a jury and and coming into that experience with with to some degree uh, perspective perhaps shift from where most of us perhaps are now um, when thinking about like our role as a juror, not only in the case, but also with regard to the law is also a different component with regard to, say, the criminal justice reform efforts. Um, And I'm curious about how the two things are connected, but also disconnected. Could you say a little bit more about what you're you're asking? Um, that that the the suggestion with regard to radical enfranchisement, which, in in terms of my understanding from the book, is about thinking about citizens having a better sense of what they're doing in the jury room, um, with regard to not only the case that's in front of them, but as you talk about also interpreting the law itself. Um, and I was wondering how that is connected or not as connected to the broader projects that we're seeing around us with regard to criminal justice reform in terms of enfranchisement of former felons, um, reducing the um, number of people incarcerated, and so forth. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so one of the um, more controversial um, suggestions in the book is that all um, all citizens should be educated in the uh, in the power that juries have to nullify. And what nullification means is that um, jurors, in a particular case, decide that um, they uh, they want to uh, render a not guilty verdict, even though there might be overwhelming evidence, even though it might be obvious that the the law was broken, um, but 
they choose to offer that not guilty verdict because they either feel that the uh, defendant is, is worthy of a particular type of compassion or they think that the law itself is unjust um, or they think the, the prosecution was corrupt and, and so therefore it's an illegitimate trial. But jurors always have the ability to offer a not guilty verdict um, uh, and without being um, sort of second guessed by the other officers of the court um, uh, or having to explain their verdict, right? We, right now we, with, with jurors, um, you, we don't ask them like, is your, you know, uh, logic sound, you know, do we agree with it? Um, uh, jurors, as you know, have that final decision-making power and, um, and are um, are able to offer a, a not guilty verdict, and that's a protected right of the jury. And in a way, it's the the right that keeps the whole thing together, right? Because if um, if the if there could be this um, kind of correction when a not guilty verdict is offered, it doesn't serve the the purpose of checking the state and checking um, uh, um, uh, so the um, the power of the prosecution in any meaningful way. Um, but currently, um, uh, you are not allowed to um, uh, to kind of educate jurors about nullification um, outside of a courthouse. If you say that you know about nullification uh, during the Wadaya um, process, which is the selection process um, of jurors, um, uh, you know a judge will most likely um, ask you to uh, to leave. You'll be excused um, from the jury pool um, because this, it's thought to be this um, very volatile power that could easily be abused. Um, because even though the, the the power is there um, to be used in, in you know in cases um, where, where the jury believes that a punishment would be um, inappropriate, it, you know it can it, someone could you could use it, and we actually saw this happen a lot in the South in lynching cases where jurors knew that um, uh, that the white defendant had um, uh, had engaged in lynching, um, but did not want to punish him for it, um, and those were nullifications. It was not a question of not having enough evidence or not understanding the law, uh, the jury decided um, to acquit. Um, so um, uh, the the power to nullify is um, is, is a very um, potent one um, and uh, and can be misused just like with anything else. But um, but I argue that um, keeping it a secret from jurors has, has kind of distorted the way people understand what their role is and also um, uh, not allowed people to use it when it might be appropriate uh, to use it. Um, and the kind of the my opponents would say, um, but we do say, see juries using it when they when they are really moved to do so, and that's the right level of uh, nullification. Uh, for example, um, uh, kind of the change in marijuana laws in this country came about in part because um, uh, juries were refusing to uh, punish people who had a small amount of uh, marijuana on them, or um, they you know they didn't see it as a um, uh, you know as a really threatening uh, offense and. So juries kept offering not guilty um, uh, verdicts uh, in, in marijuana cases, and the prosecutors got the message. Then they stopped bringing those cases. And then, if you're not going to bring the cases, then then maybe we shouldn't have that law on the books. Um, so um, uh, so changing uh, um, uh, the the law through jury decisions is not the only way of changing it. And I'm not suggesting that it's. Um, uh, that it replaces um, other types of legislative action, um, but it's an important uh, form of information about which laws are working and who they're working for or against, and um, what it, what people who are experiencing the law think about them. And um, uh, and if we kind of track who when people are punished and when they're not, we get all of this information about um, about the law. 
And so I think telling people about nullification um, is a way for them to uh, this, uh, to understand that they really do have the power to um, uh, to you know stop a law from being enforced if they don't agree with it. And and to your question about how does it connect to other um, reforms in the criminal um, uh, legal system, um, I see it as, as as really kind of a part of that. Um, the chapter in my book on nullification is called you know nullification in um, in the age of abolition, right? So you can work for the end of prisons and still believe that you should be a juror and um, and then nullify in certain cases. Um, uh, and and the idea is that it's um, that in these um, uh, criminal reform movements as well as in my argument about enfranchisement, um, we're trying to get citizens to see that you can um, uh, respect the rule of law, you can believe that um, uh, the, the law is an important institution that um, uh, um, plays an important role, yet still um, uh, work to reform it, work to change it, um, uh, go against what the officers of the court might want when you uh, practice nullification, um, and uh, see your responsibility not just to um, uh, kind of resist the law, but then also in you know other parts of your life to um, uh, to build up you know alternative institutions, alternative ways of, of dealing with uh, disputes and violations um, that would um, uh, that would uh, you know remove power from the parts of the law that you think are um, uh, coercive to um, another different type of method. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And, and so this is, this is what I found really interesting as well in terms of thinking about the idea of educating citizens about jury duty and, and the sort of role of the jury in our system is we don't necessarily have very much of that. Um, it doesn't come through in civic education per se when you are in grammar school. Um, and, and so you talk about things like um, the jury project um, and, and other aspects of where this could happen. Can you talk a little bit more about how and and how and where this could happen in terms of educating citizens a bit more yeah no i think um i think it can happen more at every level i think even starting in grammar school um i think it would not just be like knowing what the jury is and uh, that it's uh, constitutionally protected but like do, you know being involved in uh, you know adjudication and in your in the school right be um uh, thinking about what skills are necessary to be a juror um and uh there is a suit going on in rhode island now where um uh, parents have sued the state for failing to provide a uh, quality public education to students. And um, one of the things uh, parents are saying is that like, it's not preparing students for citizenship. It's not preparing them to be jurors, you know, like we, there were the schools are not teaching um, the skills of, um, of, you know, of, of critical thinking of, um, uh, you know, uh, you know co comprehension of, um, uh, you know, of navigating um, biases of um, uh, statistical understanding um, uh, of psychological um, perceptions that are all these things 
things are required to be to be jurors. And um, and so I think um, there is a way to both um, think about, about it as a part of the curriculum of like what can how, what can we how can we teach uh, students to be jurors, and then just also more sort of straightforward forms of, of, of civic education of like these are all the things that um, uh, that you uh, you should know about being a juror. And um, part of that is also is is not assuming that you just kind of walk into the courtroom and um, and kind of your your whatever you do there may you know is um, appropriate for being a juror. My um, you know I, I sometimes joke that I think uh, jurors should also wear robes. You know and, um, uh, because it's like it's a good sign that like you're doing something different. It is um, and you are uh, especially like respected because of it. And um, so you bring in you know your life experiences and so much of what you know uh, about human nature into the courtroom. But you also have to pay attention to all of these other things. And you also have to question um, some of the assumptions and shortcuts that you make in the rest of your life um, when you are a juror. So I think teaching... um, Teaching people through civic education, of it's a role that we we play, and um, and uh, thinking about the complexity of, of playing that role, right? It's, it's impossible to be impartial in the way that um, jurors are often told, and sometimes it's even the the um, delusion of this impartiality that causes the problem. Um, for example, you know, jurors in the tr- trial of George Zimmerman um, for the killing of Trayvon Martin. Um, said like we never thought about race at all when we you know c- uh, came to our decision to uh, to acquit, um, and so that didn't see, that doesn't seem to be the right way to think about that case. Um, so um, understanding how it is that we um, grapple with our biases, both conscious and unconscious ones, how we talk to other people um, in a way that um, can we can truly listen to what they might be adding to the conversation. Um, how do we you know disagree um, and then decide how to move forward. Um, so, um, uh, so I think these are all, uh, skills that we can focus them when we're thinking about the jury, but are, clearly are very relevant outside the jury room. And then you brought up, um, the juror project, um, which was, uh, um, this project started by William Snowden, um, a public defender in, um, in New Orleans. And, um, and his, uh, what he saw was that, um, you know, a lot of people in, um, in New Orleans didn't, um, know much about what a, a jury d- duty entailed. They didn't really see it as that important or they thought that may not, they, they didn't have the time for it. Or, um, and, uh, so he kind of developed this like one hour, um, uh, workshop um, that he would take to um, like community halls and uh, schools. And I saw it, uh, I attended one at the Urban League um, where he would um, uh, do kind of a mock, um, uh, you know, j- uh, a jury selection process. He would talk about the history of di- discrimination um, uh, within juries um, and then the importance of, of, of having diverse juries. Um, you, you, there's evidence that's shown that um, when there are d- jurors from different um, races backgrounds the deliberation goes on longer there you know people are more likely to ask questions it seems like they're, the they're, the process is more engaged um, when people um, uh, f- from different backgrounds serve on a jury and we just know that that like that people of color are greatly underrepresented um, on juries and uh, and so um, changing the way people think about jury service is one way to uh, fix that 
the other way to fix it is on the side of the selection. Um, and I've written about how we need to get rid of peremptory challenges, um, which is uh, the dismissal of um, jurors without cause, um, just because one side doesn't like a juror, they have a certain number of um, kind of uh, cards they can use to say like, okay, we, you know, we please remove 17. And then the other side can say, okay, yeah, we also, we don't want for number five. And so 17 and five go, um, um, uh, even though there was no cause particularly for them to uh, be eliminated. And uh, what we've seen is that um, uh, peremptory challenges are often used to remove people of color from the jury. Um, so there need to, needs to be a change both in how people think about wanting to serve on a jury, but also um, big changes in terms of jury selection. And and you just pointed out one of the sort of underlying um, points that you sort of weave through out a lot of your analysis is that there are a variety of um, sort of biases that are sort of moved aside often in terms of who gets to be on a jury in the United States um, and that there are racial dimensions to this. That there have been gender dimensions to this as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, sort of that's both a problem and how your um, argument here with regard to radical enfranchisement, um, besides removing preemptory challenges, would also get at some of those problems. Yeah, I mean, I think one just call, like reminding people that uh, the other part of being a citizen is serving on a jury um, uh, brings that question of who is serving, how we select them um, to the forefront again. Um, and uh, I, um, one interesting thing is that the issue of the jury um, oftentimes unites people on the left and the right. That you know, right now we have a very conservative Supreme Court, but um, uh, in recent years they have um, uh, uh, ruled on certain cases that have um, uh, have strengthened the power of. The the jury. They ruled on in a racial discrimination case, um, Flowers v. Mississippi, uh, last year, where they, you know, um, uh, thought that the the uh, a prosecutor, a white prosecutor's actions in this uh, trial of a black defendant um, were, um, you know, inappropriate and racist, essentially, and um, they, um, uh, you know, uh, um, remanded the the case. Right? They didn't respect the the the, the verdict. Um, so even a conservative Supreme Court cares about the jury, and um, and I think um, reframing or re-understanding how enfranchisement means that you are seen as um, as uh, as uh, sort of worthy. Of serving in this highest decision-making capacity um, is a good way to try to get some changes in how we and how we select jurors. Um, um, in addition to peremptory and removing peremptory challenges, um, I also think we need a better way of um, drawing a random sample. Um, right now. Um, uh, People who call from uh, for jury duty, their names are often taken either from um, voter registration lists or um, DMV lists. Um, and uh, so this method of selection um, disadvantages people who don't have a car, who uh, you might, you might not have a permanent address, who you know, move frequently. Um, and uh, and so uh, we'd be better off following the um, process used in Massachusetts, which is um, every year to have residency lists. Um, and uh, and so at least it's an up-to-date um, uh, list of people who live in a certain vicinity during that year. Um, and, uh, and, and we should draw a random sample from that. 
Um, uh, so once we have a more diverse, diverse sample, um, then we can focus on how are people, you know, selected um, or removed from from the pool. And um, what was exciting about that uh, workshop I attended in New Orleans was at the end of it, people said, like, now I actually want to serve on a jury. Like, I want, I'll tell people in my family to serve, you know, I before, you know, it was just really easy to dismiss it as an inconvenience. Um, and now, um, like, I know, know, know why it's important and I, I think it might be interesting. Um, and just having that shift in attitude changes the way you answer questions when you, you're, you're um, asked during uh, um, jury selection. Um, if you, when you want to be there, you, uh, you, 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 you don't need to lie or anything, but you just are open to, um, uh, to the challenge and open to you know, um, uh, answering questions in a way that suggests that uh, you, you, you are ready to be, do the work of being a juror. Um, so I think um, a little bit more enthusiasm um, about serving, uh, in addition to big changes in the selection process, um, uh, would um, really change the way um, uh, the sort of juries look. Um, in, in, in. So we were talking about the understanding of sort of the open, more open disposition that jurors may have coming into a coming into being a juror um, if they have a, a more positive understanding and and sort of more agency in terms of being associated with that role as part of their citizenship. Um, would that be the case in terms of better understandings of what it is you are doing as a juror and the kind of power that you have not only with regard to the case in front of you, but also in terms of the law? I think so. And I, I think that, um, yeah, that it just show like the jury system shows such faith in, in, you know, the American people. Right. And, uh, when I presented this to, um, people from, um, other countries that don't have jury systems, and that's you know, the vast majority of countries in the world right now do not have a jury system. They are always like, why would you ever do that? Why would you ever give power to like, you know, any random person? And um, so I think the more people understand about um, why we have it about, you know, I really see the jury as like a Trojan horse that kind of got, um, uh, you know, snuck into the American uh, system, which um, has otherwise been, uh, you know, consolidating power in a smaller and smaller number of people. And, um, and the, you know, right now, less than 5% of cases go to jury trial. So, um, um, yeah, while we have the power, um, it, you know, um, in reality, um, and you know, we're not taking you know much advantage of it. Um, but uh, uh, but I think um, uh, we can change the way people think about um, uh, the you know yeah the, the kind of remarkable um, institution that we have in the jury, and um, and that they are actually the kind of person who is supposed to be on the jury, right? That it's not it's not just about passing the buck and hoping someone else can do it, um, but um, but that uh, it, that it's it's a satisfying, important, um, uh, powerful um, uh, aspect of citizenship. And and you you also introduce early on in the book um, the discussion that Alexis de Tocqueville has with regard to the merits of this system in the United States is one of the points that he's particularly complimentary of with regard to the American system. But you also have a critique of his understanding of the jury system. Can you talk a little bit about how this Tocquevillian concept of the jury is one that we are still sort of wrestling with? Yeah, I, um, 
You know, uh, when I first started doing this project, I found um, that, you know, almost any, uh, you know, uh, uh, project about the American jury, um, you know, said like, you know, Tocqueville understood it, you know, and Tocqueville is the kind of patron, uh, patron theorist of um, uh, jury studies. And, um, and that's because like, he was like, incredibly enthusiastic um, about the way that it, you know, fit with his understanding of the power of, of, of local participation in, in the American system. And that's where we um, develop um, um, civic norms. Um, but he also really appreciated the jury because it took um, um, ordinary people, people and um, allowed them to experience, you know, what he thought of as like the majesty of the law and the courts firsthand. Um, Tocqueville thought that, you know, the um, that judges in this country were kind of the closest thing we had to an aristocracy and that when um, um, jurors um, were called in and were treated with respect by judges and, and could observe what judges did um, uh, close up, they would also um, uh, get a little bit of that disposition and so, uh, you know, they would, um, they would want to learn from and, and even to mimic um, uh, um, the judges and lawyers in, in the courtroom. And that itself was a form of um, of education. You know, he famously called um, you know the, the jury you know a schoolhouse that is always open. Right? So he really saw the pedagogical function uh, of the jury is very important. And I've also talked about um, why um, the jury has uh, plays this important educational role. But where I diverge from Tocqueville is that I think he never lets jurors graduate from that schoolhouse. He like always wants them to be in this deferential relationship to the judge and to lawyers and um, and I think that um, sometimes that that deference gets in the way of jurors realizing that they are supposed to represent an, a different perspective and they are not supposed to just do the the work of the you know of what what lawyers or judges want them to do that um, and, and, and as I said in the beginning it's, it's an asset that they don't know all this about lots of things about precedent about um, uh, you know technical aspects of the law they're supposed to engage with um, with the case um, under a certain number of guidelines, and they're not supposed to disregard um, uh, things like the, you know, the standard of proof, or or even rules like you can't be on, you know, you can't be on social media during uh, during a trial. But they don't need to show show deference in um, in kind of in every single way to the judge. And um, and when they come up with a nullification verdict, that's one place where that's not um, in deference to the judge. In my chapter on the hung jury, I also talk about how sometimes. Um, uh, Jurors, uh, just you know, change their vote because they feel like the judge wants them to, or because they will it will feel like an unsuccessful trial if it's a hung jury. Um, so I think uh, so. Part of my critique is that um, I think there should be a little bit more of a sense of um, contestation between the, the judge and the jurors, um, and uh, and that this is a, a productive uh, dynamic for for the courtroom. And I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about some of these um, concepts that you are discussing throughout the book, things like hung juries and what that actually means um, and how that fits into the idea of radical enfranchisement, as well as these questions of reasonable doubt. I mean, these are always the terms that we hear um, with regard to jury deliberation um, and courtroom sort of instructions. Can you talk a little bit about sort of those concepts in this in this context? Yeah, um, you know, it's funny because it's like we yeah, we all know these terms and and I think 
um, that um, in some ways we we also know that like you you keep if you become a juror you can be held in contempt of court if you do things that uh, that you're not supposed to do. Um, so there's this sense that like you are you are like sort of learning these important concepts from the judge and then using them right there um, based on these vague understandings um, that you might have gotten from TV or from um, uh, civic education. Um, and I think that these concepts are really rich concepts and worth talking about more. And um, and so part of why I think jurors need to be educated um, prior to the courtroom. One is because the courtroom is um, does come with um, a certain deference to the judge that is like built into that space. And so if we learn about being a juror in other spaces, um, we, we might be able to see uh, more of the fullness of the um, of the role. Um, but also because um, you know, like you, you like a term like reasonable doubt, like is worth talking about with other people and uh, you know trying to figure out how you understand it and what are some of the different ways of uh, thinking about it or what are some of the dangers in uh, to either taking shortcuts and uh, and uh, trying to uh, make a decision based on reasonable doubt, um, and so I think that because there are these kind of key terms that people sort of know, um, uh, we we oftentimes miss out on the opportunity to, to uh, think about them more in the context outside of the courtroom. And then when we, we when if we are called to be jurors, um, we have to apply them um, uh, when um, uh, and and you know maybe don't feel as as equipped to do it as we might if uh, if we had had more discussions of it before. For. Um, but I think there's a lot of like misinformation uh, about some of these terms, but but sometimes it's not um, willful or like it's you know not um, anybody's fault that there's this misinformation because there's a lot of variation um, between states on, on different things between the federal system and the state system. Um, so uh, so I think kind of all the more reason why um, just a, like a, a more thorough um, education before you enter the courtroom is necessary so that you can so that you feel comfortable with some of these key terms, um, because they will sh- shape the way that you act when you're in that space. So my 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 next question is one that I've been sort of. Uh, trying to wrap my head around in terms of reading through the book and thinking about what does the radically enfranchised jury room look like? Yes, that's a, that's a good question. And, um, and to at the final chapter in the book um, looks at a couple of different cases and it thinks about what uh, a radically enfranchised uh, jury uh, uh, might have led to. So these were actual cases and I, and I kind of um, engage in some like post game analysis of them. Um, um, so for, for example, um, uh, there's the case of Cecily McMillan, um, who was an Occupy Wall Street activist um, who was on trial for assaulting a police officer. This was a police officer who was trying to remove her from Zuccotti Park. And um, and uh, so they, as, as he was trying to get her out of the space, like she, she, she elbowed him and injured him. And she was on trial uh, for, for that. Um, and the the jury in that case um, uh, deliberated. Uh, they came up with a guilty verdict, but they sent um, a letter to the judge signed by nine of the twelve jurors, saying, um, "While we." Um, uh, we came up with a guilty verdict. We really don't think punishment um, uh, of any significant duration is uh, is appropriate in this case. Like we we you know, we, we felt uh, kind of t- tied to the letter of the law, but um, we don't think she sh- should um, should be imprisoned. And um, and th- while you know I understand the sentiment, and it was good that jurors were able to express it in this way. 
they miss the, the opportunity of their greatest power. Um, uh, the, um, and that, that was the moment where, of the decision. Um, and I think if they had been radically enfranchisers in, in some sense, um, they would have known that, about the possibility of nullification, that they could have said, yes, this Lynn McMillan, um, uh, there's enough evidence to show that um, uh, she should be uh, guilty of uh, this assault. Um, but we don't think that, that um, a guilty verdict is appropriate in this case. And we will vote not guilty. Um, uh, the fact that only nine of the 12 jurors signed this letter suggests that maybe they wouldn't have gotten a unanimous verdict that those other three that actually thought like she was guilty and she, and she should be punished um, uh, might, uh, might have uh, um, made, made it such that they couldn't have reached a consensus. But I think um, a radically enfranchised jury knows about the range of possibilities um, uh, that are open to them and knows that where the jury has the power is in the decision and it's not in the sentencing and um, and that this um, that would have shaped their um, uh, um, their verdict. Um, I also bring up the case of the Central Park Five, um, where um, five you know, um, black and brown teenagers were falsely accused of um, uh, attacking and uh, raping a jogger in Central Park. Um, and uh, and that uh, case um, hinged on the confessions, which were um, uh, later found out to be false confessions of uh, um, of the teenagers. And even in in the in the Central Park Five trials, um, uh, the uh, the teenagers said, like we, you know, like the, what we were to- we were told what to say, we were told what to write in our confessions. Um, you, uh, the videotape shows that we were, you know, we were not doing it um, um, uh, willingly voluntarily. Um, but the jury had a really hard time understanding um, how people could confess to a crime that they didn't commit and um, and have all of these details that seem to be connected to the, the crime. How, how could they have written that if they um, really didn't do it? And I think um, um, part of uh, the education of jurors would also be about um, uh, what we know about the psychology of defendants. And, um, and so it w- the first time that they're in a jury, room would not be the first time they'd be hearing about um, the prevalence of false confessions and especially with um, you know uh, uh, youth defenders um, uh, how like how that might have come to be um, you know oftentimes issues like the um, uh, the veracity of false confessions um, are debated within a trial where you have you know one side saying that it's you know it's a, a that false con- this is a false confession the other side saying what well, have presenting an expert that is going to dispute that but I think that takes the issue um, and puts it into this adversarial framework kind of saying like there's two different versions of this whereas when jurors are educated about uh, these topics before they get to uh, the courtroom they um, it, it, it's not being presented that way, and it doesn't feel like it's like lawyer tricks that are um, um, that are being used on both sides, but rather like um, uh, they, they will have understood like what is the dynamic that leads people to um, falsely confess, and um, and then in a specific case they can draw on that, and they, they will get new experts, but they will have some knowledge that they're bringing into that into the courtroom to help them understand um, what they're hearing. And and so it, in a lot of your work, I, I see a thread with regard to this question of deliberation and ideas of citizenship. Um, so my question to you is, what are you working on now? I, 
um, I decided that I still have more things to say about the jury, um, and uh, and that you know, and that like this book in some ways like is like a the opening gambit. Like I want you know, I want to say anything more about um, uh, uh, the jury selection process. Um, I'm working on a, um, on a piece about the jury in the Angela Davis trial. So Angela Davis was on trial in 1971 for um, conspiracy and for kidnapping and uh, tied to the murder of a judge. And uh, she had an all white jury um, uh, in California for that, uh, for that trial. And, um, and everything I thought was, it looked like it was set up for her to be convicted. Um, And, uh, you know, she was seen as, you know, as this, you know, radical communist, you know, black philosophy professor. Um, And, uh, and the jury came back not guilty. Um, and uh, so I'm writing about how, like, w- w- um, how we might understand that jury in Angela Davis, in the Angela Davis trial, to be a jury of her peers, even though they didn't look anything like uh, what, what her, her peers would be. Um, so really investigating the standard of peerhood and, um, and what that means. Well, will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk about that book when it's done? Yeah, I would love to. This is really fun. All right. Thank you for joining me today, Sonali, um, author of Radical Enfranchisement in the Jury Room and Public Life, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2019. Um, and I assume one can pick this book up at the University of Chicago Press website as well as other places. Yep. Unless there's a brick and mortar store you want to give a shout out to in days of pandemics. Yeah, no, I think the Chicago website is a great place for that. Okay. Thanks for joining me today, Sonali. Thanks, Lily.